When I thought about how to kick off this series, there was only one answer. Grime. Grime is a true rags-to-riches story, something that I've witnessed go from the subject of tabloid moral panics to respected art form over the last 20 years. So, how did grime go mainstream? How has the sound of the genre matured? And with two decades of tunes to choose from, where should new listeners start their journey? This is Start Here, a brand new podcast brought to you by the Associated Board of the Royal Schools of Music. I'm your host, Alexis French. I'm a pianist, composer and producer. And you could say my home turf is the world of classical music. So why am I talking to you about grime? It's a fair question. Over my career, I've strived to invite new listeners into the world of classical music. And though it can be hard to know where to begin a journey with a new genre, it's easy to feel like things aren't for you. Or maybe you just don't get the hype. But if you're open to learning more, there are people in every genre waiting to invite new fans and listeners in. And over this series, I'm going to find them. From country to classical, from K-pop to hip-hop, Every episode, I'm going to be asking an expert what they love about their genre, getting them to break down what makes it work musically, and finally, get a recommendation. Where should I start? Which brings me back to grime, a genre I have a growing affinity with, but I don't know too much about. So to help me understand more, I was in need of some expert assistance. Enter grime superfan and author of Hold Tight, Black Masculinity, Millennials and the Meaning of Grime, Jeffrey Boachi. This genre is called grime. You know, that's not a nice thing. And no one making it called it grime to begin with. Journalists called it that. And yet there was so much talent, joy, energy in it that empowered the people that were making this music. Jeffrey was a young adult in London as grime was emerging. Over the years, he's developed an encyclopedic understanding of the genre, watching as it ebbed and flowed in popularity, always listening for new and exciting voices. His knowledge and enthusiasm is infectious. So pens at the ready, as he's absolutely brimming with recommendations. Jeffrey, how are you doing? I'm thrilled to be here and and what a topic to be getting into. It's like Christmas morning, you've you've given me a parcel <laughs> that I know what's inside, but I can't wait to get into it anyway. Are you bursting at the seams? I am. I love talking about this stuff. Awesome, awesome, awesome. So what I want to hear, first of all, I want to hear your elevator pitch. I want you to tell me and tell the listeners why they should give Grime a try. All right, here we go. So first things first, let's go back in time, early 2000s circa 2003. This is widely seen as the birth point of grime as a genre. But what I love is even that story is the meeting of various musical streams. And that's really important because music can't be compartmentalized in the way that we try to. And grime is a living, breathing example of that. You go a bit further back, you get UK Garage, you know, this idea of dance floor music, electronic dance floor music imported from the US, soulful lyrics, a slightly restless beat, but then you've got other angles as well. You've got hip hop from the US, the lyricism, jungle music. Again, that takes us into dance hall. We're going into Jamaican culture specifically. And all of that is kind of coming together in this ecosystem, 
which unites a broad diaspora, not just Caribbean, not just African-American, but Black British in general, you know, the West African diaspora. And beyond that, just the kind of the young working class population of Britain finding a place to call their own. And that is the ecosystem that has given us the constellation that we now call the grime UK rap scene. So if you're interested in any of that, this is what you need to listen to. All right. Beyond that, I just love the story. It's a rags to riches story because this genre is called grime. You know, that's not a nice thing. And no one making it called it grime to begin with. They push back against that. Journalists call it that. So that speaks to the fact that this is a marginalized culture. It was seen as something which was dirty to be thrown away, discardable. And yet there was so much talent, joy, energy in it that it was co-opted, that name. And it was actually something that empowered the people that were making this music. Mm. So that kind of marginalized art, that kind of folk cultural place that became a pedestal from a gutter, that's something which is to be celebrated, I think, in Britain as a whole, but also in terms of the psyche of how humans can create something from nothing, the inventiveness. So that's my elevator pitch. I don't know if I've gone over 60 seconds, but... Take from that what you want. I liked it. I liked it. Pithy it was not, but do you know what? There was there, <laughs> were, there, there was so much in there and I appreciate it. A couple of things stuck out. So grime, nobody who created this in the first instance called it grime. That was a name that came on later. That's interesting. The sense of this being the voice of rebellion. That's what I'm taking from what you've just said. Is there any truth to that? Yeah, 100%. I mean, what you have to remember is that you know, when you're talking about the 90s, getting towards the new millennium, mm. like young people in this country were having increasingly fewer options as to where to go, where to be. Youth clubs are closing down. The government is defunding certain spaces that young people would have spent their time in. The arts have been extracted from school to some extent. We're already getting political. If you go out of the classroom, you go into like just basically like clubbing. UK Garage was an expensive hobby. If you went out clubbing in those UK garage club nights, you had to wear a shirt, you had to have a pair of shoes on, you had to spend some money on bottles of champagne. This wasn't accessible to a lot of people that liked the music. So a lot of these kids, to use that term, not as a pejorative, but they were young, they had to make their own spaces. And so in a way, there's a bit of rebellion just in existing outside of these mainstream spaces. And that sense of energy and protest of having to knock on the door to be let in, make yourself heard, that lives right in the DNA of grime. And I feel like everyone can appreciate what that feels like if you've ever been a young person or if you've ever felt marginalised in any way. So that's an important kind of spirit to hold dear and it's captured by the genre. Mm, 100%. So we've talked a little bit about cultural context and lineage. It would be good to get into the music itself and the component parts, the DNA of what we hear and where that's come from. Yeah, definitely. There's there's a few kind of hallmarks of classic grime, if you want to call it that. It's like talking about classic folk music, I don't know. But um, one of them is, is the rhythm and the per- percussive patterns. You've got syncopations off, off the chart. It's all about being off the beat rather than on the beat. And the syncopations come with lots of different percussive sounds. So you're going to have kicks and snares. That's like your hip hop backbone. But then you're going to have hi-hats doing all sorts of interesting things, you know. 
like it's all it's always off and the syncopations are very agitated and restless so if you if you think about um something like uk garage uh-huh. it's got it's got syncopations that make it sound like uk garage okay. you know yeah it's it's like Oh, here we go. Let's do it, man. Yeah. Okay. So you immediately, you immediately start moving because your body is filling in those gaps and catching the rhythm, you know? Grime might go even further where it's like, you know, so it's all. This is good. Yeah. It's very disjunctive. Yeah. Okay. Okay. And yeah. Yeah. I'm yeah that. It's ve- it's very disjunctive, which which kind of gives it that kind of like that bounce. But then you know the speed of it is interesting because classic grime should be at 180 BPM. Okay. That's, right. That's fast. That's fast. Mm. So if you add it together, you've got the speed plus the syncopations. You're tripping up over yourself, but that makes it energetic. It's impossible to kind of sit still when you're listening to grime. So I feel like the chords I was playing, it's too much, right? So in terms mm. of um, the harmonic content of these things, you know, the triads, etc. in some music, there, there is a kind of beauty and a simplicity in terms of the chordal breakdowns. And it's, you know, that's, yeah. that's not where the action's at. So what, nah. what kind of, you know, and, it, <laughs> and you can egg it too much. So, you know, should this kind of thing... Are we talking root chords mm. here, kind of similar? Okay, okay, okay. This kind of thing. Where, where is that? Where's the juice coming from in terms of the pentatonics? Harmony? The pentatonics. Pentatonics, man. Definitely. Right. Okay. There's, and that's interesting because you know an easy way to get to a pentatonic scale yeah. on a keyboard is by using the black keys, right? Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And that will like give you what has been problematically called historically an Oriental sound. Yes. Right. Mm-hmm. And we associate that with the Far East from a European Western perspective. Pentatonics, you hear them a lot in grime, mm-hmm. and the reasons for that are so like my personal theory is that a lot of grime comes from kids who are playing computer games from Japan. Yeah. From that uh, part of so the world. You've got that- those kind of ringtone yeah. type. Oh, yes. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Ring. T- yeah. So that's in their heads when they're making music. So right. if you listen to anything like Dizzy Rascal's first album, or even um, Stormzy's got a song called Shut Up, which uses an instrumental by someone called XTC. Mm. And it's beautiful. It's really calm. It goes, you know, da 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 Oh, that's kind of got all kind of like a West African kind of Yeah. Beautiful. Oh. Yeah. Yeah. But then Stormzy is somebody who takes that. I mean, I was listening to Stormzy. I do listen to Stormzy because I think what he does is absolutely off the hook. It's beautiful. Mm. He takes his music often into these these really sort of jazzy realms, doesn't he, with his chords? He does. It's, he does. And, and gospel as well and all these yes. kind of influences. Yes. Yet he retains the signature and the brand. But this is the thing, like Stormzy is, remember, I wrote a book about grime millennials and black masculinity. I'm a millennial. I'm a geriatric millennial. I'm too old for this stuff, all right? <laughs> Stormzy's not a millennial. He's like one generation half step younger than me. Yeah. He came about at a time where he thought, you know what? I want to sing. Mm. 
unheard of in 2003. What, you think that these roadmen were going to actually put melody into their work? Melody's soft, right? Surely. Mm. Melody's for like girls, right? This is toxic masculinity talking. Nah, Stormzy in his mixtape era, when he was putting out like stuff on YouTube, he said, they love when I rap, they hate when I sing, but give them time. And he was singing. Yeah. And what I like about that is that we all want to sing. Most artists now making UK rap, they sing as part of their repertoire. Getz has got a beautiful voice. There's a song called Proud Family right. by Getz. Yeah. And I was like, who is singing in that? It's like, it's Getz singing. His voice is angelic. It's the same guy that was talking about ripping your head off in 2002, you know? There's, there's, there's something about Getz. Is, uh, what's that song he did? Um, it's about a South African thing. Is it like a... Um, Mozambique. Oh, my word. Yeah. I don't know, bro. My. I don't know. Keep the streets, bro. Oh. And it's like this beautiful hook. It's, and it's all speaking in like Afrikaans yeah, as well. It's so it's like, gorgeous. To bring that... This is what I mean. Like, this is the, this is the maturity of a genre that started off with can I get the microphone and spray as many bars as possible and scare everyone in the room mm. and make sure that I'm on top afterwards? It started with that. And now you've got, let me bring in these pentatonics. Let me bring in this um, Afrikaans language. Let me bring mm. in these melodies. Let me bring in these harmonies. Let me bring in a brass band. You know, it's, it's music maturing in front of our very eyes or our very ears. Yeah. That, that to me is mind blowing because the music is of a high quality now as well. Even the recording is high quality quality now it is what it sonically sounds like because yeah. back in the day people were recording on whatever they could find it didn't sound great dizzy rascal's first album will give you attention headache whilst being amazing but now this stuff sounds sumptuous you know it sounds expensive in the best possible sense in the, of the best word. possible way absolutely right tell us a little bit about your own journey with the music you you are, forgive me, Jeffrey, but you're a, a very urbane gentleman. Why, thank you. <laughs> and I think grime for many has these kind of slightly grungy undertones, the word itself. And, you know, it, perhaps people could be forgiven for thinking that this is the music of others, mm. of a particular socioeconomic background. Yeah. It's the music of people perhaps with certain limitations. Yes. Life limitations. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I'm interested. For me, there's a kind of contradiction <laughs> with the person that you are and the music that you are celebrating and commending to me and yeah. to the listeners. Yeah, I know what you mean. <laughs> you look at me thinking, this guy is not street enough. To be, <laughs> this guy's not road enough to be connected you know, to the genre. What's going it's on? Not, it's not your typical road man. He pronounces his here. T's and everything. What's happening? <laughs> so what, what happened? Tell me about that journey and why it is that you call this music home. Why it is yeah. you have such a strong affinity with this genre. Take me back in time. Let me take you through the story. Yeah, so there's a proximity with like grime as a genre to what you might call the iconic ghetto. This mm. idea of like a a context of social economic deprivation and the ghettoization of communities that means that they haven't got a lot. And the music that might be connected to these communities might then speak on some of these topics, mm. like the deprivation, of course, but then the criminality, because there's a proximity that comes with that, the, the hard edge of street life. I grew up in Brixton, in South London, which when I grew up, it was like pre-Starbucks, pre-gentrification Brixton. So I grew up when it was still rough around the edges. 
So I always had a proximity to that. I grew up on an estate. So I knew what that world was like. But this was not a world of despair, doom and gloom. In any community, there's always leaders, hope, light, joy, family, community. And that's something which I saw in my immediate community, the estate that I grew up in, as much as I saw in my family. So growing up, I always had a connection to cultures that were of those communities. The Caribbean diaspora, big part of the Brixton story, reggae, dance hall, um, ska, soca, all this type of music from the Caribbean. And my parents are from Ghana, West Africa, but I was living within these black cultures, broadly speaking. So when grime comes along, I was already familiar with its kind of genealogy. I heard it and I understood it. And I was quite old, really, when I first heard Brian, like 2003. How old am I in 2003? I'm like 21, right? And I first started hearing this music on mixtapes and people giving me songs. And I was like, I get this. I can hear where it's come from. And the interesting thing to me is I didn't immediately hear the social problems, the stuff that was um, scaring people that that were being told to hug a hoodie and the Asbo generation, all that stuff that was kicking around in that kind of time. Mm. I heard creativity. I heard the sound of innovation because these are new sounds. I also heard what I like to call the innovation of limitation because these were people making music with whatever they had, be it a couple of records here, computer game noises there, very primitive digital recording technology that you could like download for free off the internet. So that's what I heard first. And that is very intimate to me because I'm that kind of person. I'm very creative. I like making stuff out of nothing. I'm a nerd, you know, I wear glasses. So do you, we're nerds. (laughs) (laughs) So I heard that nerdiness. And that's what I think I could connect with, even though I'm not living in the iconic ghetto. Does that make any sense? It does. It does. Through your school days then, were there certain social cliques tied to musical genres and, you know, the whole scar things? And which tribe did you belong to? Because I grew up in South London, I was just so closely connected to Jamaican culture. So as a child, some of my favourite music would have been dancehall music. Mm. I saw my sisters, I've got two older sisters. I'm sure you can tell that I'm the baby of the family. And they would listen to a lot of reggae and a lot of dancehall. And so that was my version of cool music that I shouldn't be listening to. So that really shaped me. A lot of my friends who didn't live in South London, they weren't really listening to that kind of music Mm -hmm. as hard as I was. Um, But hip hop was a big unifier because hip hop was coming from our big shiny cousins in America. You have to remember in the 1990s, black representation in British media was kind of slim. It was like Trevor McDonald, Daley Thompson. Lenny Henry. Lenny Henry. The list was short. So we looked at our transatlantic cousins who were kind of in many ways, the superstars. So hip hop, which in the nineties was really coming into its own, was the meeting place for a lot of young black Londoners, but across the country probably. And so that was the thing that was universally like cool. And this is why, this is why the interest wise, my musical interests have always been quite broad. Um, that's why, that's part of the reason why I got into hip hop, ironically, was because hip hop loves sampling and to sample is to consume as much as you can. You can't be a good sampler if you don't try things 
And so I always was into lots of different genres. My style of dress was never archetypal. I didn't wear track suits. I didn't wear like, you know, trainers, whatever. I wasn't interested. I was a bit like quirkier than that. And that was, again, maybe a, a slight rebellion. But then I suppose the question is, what would lead me to gravitate towards grime out of all that? And I have an answer. <laughs> I'm intrigued. Please. It's essentially that when you cut through all of that, what's important for any group of people, it's the sense of community. It's the sense of like shared lived experience. And this is why I love skateboarding because it's all about the community of skaters globally. This is why I love lots of different like tribes, cultural tribes. Grime to me was like such a dazzling example of a community growing out of itself, building out of itself, collaborating with itself that I felt like I, I wanted to celebrate that aspect of it. And that's what cuts through for me. This is community cohesion at a very, very high level. And when you look at the ecosystem of which Grime is from, it's like, wow, that is a community operating at a very high level against all the odds because of all the problems that we've talked about. Is it a genre that can only live in the community? Obviously it lives um, you know, on DSPs and record in, mm. in clubs. Could you take it out of those places? Could you put it into a concert hall or the moment you do that, does it cease to be grime? Well, the thing is, is that first of all, a lot of grime's energy comes from the dance hall culture, whereby you've got an MC live on the mic and a crowd who are feeding back their energy to the MC mm. and to the selector. And mm. that kind of, it's almost performance art. You know, there's, there are cultural norms to a, a dance hall situation that live on in grime and in grime raves and in grime sets. When you get 20 MCs passing the mic around, that's like communion, you know? It's something, it's almost spiritual. And there's a reason why people zone out and just rhyming for hours. Flip that. And you've got to remember when grime came out. This is the early 2000s. We're getting more and more digital in our own heads. I did not go to any of these massive raves. I wasn't at Sidewinder. I wasn't in the pirate radio sets in the East London rooftops. I wasn't partying because I wasn't like that. I partied in different ways. So I consumed grime through my headphones, through MP3s through DVDs, CDs, you know, music videos, watching Channel U. So in a weird sort of way, it's a very digital genre in that you can join the party through your own little intimate spaces. That's very particular because that to me is part of the reason why it's proliferated into the 21st century because it works in this kind of slightly myopic social media driven world, YouTube channels, all that kind of stuff. You can be part of the culture without even going out into the culture. That's why it's so popular amongst young people now, because they can take part in it. Mm. Is grime situated in the heart of the black community? You know, is there an ownership of this genre? I see what you mean. I think that um, the best answer to that is to look at, I think one of the biggest cultural artifacts to come out of anywhere in human civilization, not just 20th century, but at any point, which is hip hop. Hip hop culture, has absolutely seeded itself in the human psyche. So hip hop can live and breathe anywhere now. You see it. You see breakdancers 
in Korea, you see rappers from Colombia, you see people who have never set foot in North America who live and breathe hip hop culture in how they dress, how they think, their values, um, how how they commune. Grime has that kind of potential in that it very quickly broke out of the locality of which it was confined. Like this was a local culture. It was East London specifically. So it, it wasn't even as far as South London where I grew up. We didn't have grime but it very quickly grew. You get to the point where people like Stormzy, Michael Omari, he's from deep South London. He grew up listening to this music. So he becomes grime when actually he knows nothing about East London. And then suddenly you get a thing where it becomes national. And that's where you get so many festivals. If you look at what's going on, it's a very, very white crowd because this country is very, very white, you know? So obviously the crowds are going to be <laughs> majority white people. But the music they're listening to, the artists, it's a lot of black artists doing UK rap. And I feel like there's something going on with this kind of music that's speaking to something mm. in these communities that have no idea what it was like growing up black and poor in East London in the 2000s. So what is it? Yeah, universal themes. Yeah. Yeah. Uni- yeah. I think that's the real conversation. What are the universal themes that mm. speak to the human spirit? And then I think that's where I start to celebrate again. Maybe. Yeah. <laughs> if we think about the, uh, you know, consciousness and what people think about grime and its association with crime, is that part of its appeal? And if so, is that anything that should be celebrated? Mm. Or is that a complete misconception? Yeah. No, I mean, first of all, it's very adolescent music. Very adolescent music. It was born of an adolescent time of adolescent minds, literal teenagers were making this music at its inception. And that adolescence has carried itself into the genre as it's matured, which is a part which is problematic because there's something about blackness, black masculinity in particular, that is safest when it's infantilized. Fact. This idea of like a black boy is easier to get your head around than a black man and being around the table with power. There's a reason why you know, younger people are kept away from these seats of power. So part of the reason that grime is acceptable as it's matured is because of its proximity to youth. People look at Stormzy, Dave, Lil Sims, Skepta, and they see young people. They see youth. And youth is historically disenfranchised from power. All right. So the issue there is that grime's adolescent energy it's like this like pyrrhic victory because it's partly giving it energy and protest and rebellion and vitality. But at the same time, no one and nothing is forever young. And I feel like the maturing of grime is something which people aren't even realizing at the moment how profoundly special that is. You've got artists now in their thirties, forties, in their fifties, who's, not only is their sound maturing, like the music's mellowing out, you know, it's not all just like spiky synths and like drums clattering down the stairs and like screaming repeated hooks. You get in like full length albums, created, crafted, finely tuned. If you listen to like some of the grime albums that have started to come out over the past four years, they're masterpieces, you know, Gets. Gets is a guy that went to prison. Gets is someone who was so street rough as he would just spit bars and just growl at you. And now he's making very, very finely tuned albums, you know, like symphonic pieces. 
Kano, Dave, you know, Koji Radical, Little Sims, they're making much more mature art and the sound is mature too. There's more texture to the palette. And I feel like that's something which um, is, is not often talked about because it's easier to see grime as angry music made by kids. Totally. I mean, but the kids aren't just kids. The kids aren't just kids. And the thing that's in, interested me actually in the music that I've seen, particularly with the, with the artists you just cited, is this collision, this artistic collision with symphonic forms. And, and classical music, particularly Little Sims, who's, who's dallied with orchestra and overtures and, and really quite large scale forces in a really serious way. And that's an interesting turn, isn't it? You know, light years away from, from the PCs and the, you know, the cobbled together bits of tech. This is ambitious grime on a, on a completely different level, announcing itself to the world as something to be taken seriously. Yeah, definitely. And um, claiming its space within these castles, these cultural castles that would not have accepted grime under any circumstances, even 15 years ago, you know? So when you talk about Little Sims, like her last album, Sometimes I Might Be Introvert, she opens with this grand orchestral piece recorded in like the biggest setting that you might record any music. And it's really interesting that she says that when she was there, she had to go back to her car and sit in her car to think about what she was going to say and to write for the simple reason that it was huge, just huge. And that hugeness is something which we're not always given permission. I think that's the thing. We're not always given permission to participate in the scale of culture that everyone should have access to. I've always heard the ambition within grime as a genre to be big. I'm not surprised by any of the milestones that grime has reached and will reach. Stormzy headlining Glastonbury, I was not surprised. It's logical endpoint. Little Sims employing full orchestras and Getz doing the same and Kano with massive brass band. Like all that stuff doesn't surprise me because the ambition was always there. And this is where some of the social problems that do hamper our development, you know, this is stuff that we didn't create. There's a reason why poor black kids from London have been denied certain opportunities and their structural reasons. So again, to me, that's like something that needs to be recognised and acknowledged, I think. Gosh, we've touched on so much and I've learned so much. Um, I feel that I need some personal recommendations. I mean, obviously, I've declared an interest in, in the go-tos, the people like the Stormsies. But could you give us some starting points, you know, where people could go to start their grime journey, maybe three or four artists where people could start? Okay, let's go to um, Dizzy Rascal to start off with. So go to his first album, Boy in the Corner, because essentially he was making what was called one of the first grime albums before he called it grime. And there's a particular track in there. Um, there's a few actually, but I Love You by Dizzy Rascal really captures the energy, the paranoia, the, the frantic nature of grime, at, like, like lightning in a bottle. It sounds like someone's kicked a bunch of synthesizers down the stairs, you know, and it's got this just, it's so repetitive. Like he's just hitting the keyboard with one finger but it works and you can hear the youth as well. And the themes are interesting as well because it's about relationships from the perspective of like a 14 year old boy. So it's like not very mature, but it speaks to the energy. So that's an important song on an important album. Going forward, there's a song called 
German Whip by Meridian Dan. Yeah, I remember this song. Because Grime died. Like, Grime was, it died. It was making no money. Artists were leaving the genre and trying to do other things. You've got to remember, like, people like Tiny Temper, Tinchy Strider, they were trying to make pop songs because that's where the money is. Yeah. So the genre just died out. And then there was a resurgence of Grime. And I think that German Whip by Meridian Dan brought back the grime sound into people's consciousness, you know, the synths, the slightly orchestral stabs going on and the energy and the sort of, yeah. And the subject matter is like, it's about driving a German car, basically. So I've got more money than you. (laughs) Um, (laughs) There's that. I think if we go a little bit further forward, oh man, where to start? You've got so many songs by Kano, who a lot of people now know as the character of Sully in yeah. Top Boy. Again, the iconic ghetto, some of the stereotyping, but it's a, it's a great piece of drama. The thing is about Kano as well is that what we haven't talked about is that grime is a lyrical art form. I will go on record as saying that grime has given us a generation of wordsmiths, men and women, who are up there with some of the best poets to ever come out of this country, Amen. if not this continent. Mm. Um, they are up there with the romantic poets in terms of their output and what they do. And no one else is using words as much as these rappers yeah. to portray a spectrum of emotions and narratives. It's We'll look back and go, what we were alive with these people. I look at these guys like people look at Wordsworth, Keats, Byron, Shelley, Blake, all that lot. We're with them now, these artists. So Kano is a poet who represents that side of grime at an incredibly high level. Absolutely. Him, Wretch Free 2, Little Sims. These are poets and social commentators that we're just lucky to have them. We're lucky to have them mm. because their work helps us to see things. So yeah, Class of Deja by Kano is another one that I'd recommend. And then for the other side of things, Queen's Speech 4 by Lady Leisha. That song was a viral hit, Queen's Speech 4 part of a series called the Queen's Speech. And it's just, if you listen to it, it's just basically metaphor after metaphor after metaphor stapled to this addictive beat. Yeah. And it's so much fun, but there's a real sense of like the playfulness and the empowerment because she's not talking about like, you know, being tough in the streets. She's talking about being better than you, but it's like playground taunts. And I think that that captures that so well. Yeah. So, yeah. So I've given you a few there. There's a long list though. There's a long list. I bet. And you you list many more in your fabulous book. Ah, stop um, it. This is Hold Tight. And it's so full of humour. It's pithy. It's got all these kind of references which I picked up and made me smile about my own youth. It's playful. It's insightful. I really do commend it to, to listeners. Go and pick up this book by uh, Jeffrey Buachi, Hold Tight. You will not regret it. Ah, thank you. Um, Jeffrey, I've just got to say, enormous thanks for your time. I've had a blast talking to you as ever. Really, really grateful for your time. And thank you so much for joining us on Start Here. Thank you so much for having me on. It's been amazing. Thank you for listening to Start Here, which is brought to you by the Associated Board of the Royal Schools of Music. If you enjoyed our interview, subscribe now to get more episodes direct to your feed. Got a genre you want us to unpack? Why not follow ABRSM on Twitter, TikTok or Instagram and tell us what we should get into next. See you next time. The team at ABRSM is Eleanor Hampton, Gemma Ralston, Rowena Taylor and me, Alexis French, ABRSM's Artistic Director. Your Creative Director at Chalk and Blade is Ruth Barnes. 
The producer was Emily Wally, and the series was mixed by Nathan De Silva. The theme music is Vida Viva Amor by Alexis French, courtesy of Universal Music Publishing Group and Sony Music Entertainment. Additional music by Mr. Scandal and from Epidemic Sound.